Hey everybody, welcome to Applying to Everything, a show about our passions, the world, and where they overlap. I'm your host, Bruno Falcon. This week, I sit down with Roxana Haddadi, a journalist, film reviewer, and amazingly talented person. We talked about movie reviews, the writer's room, diversity, and media literacy. Enjoy. I was actually just reading your review of Logan, which oh, is yeah. phenomenal. Oh, um, oh by the thank way. you. Well, anyway, thanks for, I mean, thanks for hopping on. I, I really appreciate sure. it. I really like, I've, it's been awesome reading your reviews just because they're always solid and insightful and your take on film and on movies is excellent and always just enjoyable to read, even when the movie's bad. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm actually really curious what got you into film on that end like I mean we all talk about we all talk about movies and the things we like about movies but what took Mm -hmm. you from like talking about it with folks to you know what I'm just gonna write about film I'm trying to think of when that happened um in college when I was at the University of Maryland College Park I was getting my bachelor's degree in journalism and I started out doing a lot of features and like student interest stories because I like you just really love talking to people and interviewing people and just having that kind of one-on-one interaction. So I started out in that way. And then my sophomore year, the paper needed an entertainment editor and I already had been doing a little bit of editing. So I kind of got put into that role. And from that point, and I guess that was now, I guess that was 2007. So from that point on, it was like, oh, I get to go to free movie screenings. Yes, I will do that. (laughs) So a lot of it was kind of sparked when I was a kid. My parents and I don't always have the best communication styles with each other. But a lot of things Mm -hmm. that we would do is we would watch movies together. And so I kind of grew up watching a lot of things with my father, like old David Lean films. And my mom was super into like animated Disney and loved watching those with us. So Like everybody, I think I grew up watching movies with my family and then transitioned into writing about them in college. And then when I went to grad school, I did um, American literature as my like subspecialty. And that also included film. So I think going to graduate school and learning more about film from a technical point of view and also just kind of incorporating my own experiences as someone who is Iranian American and a woman and looking at movies and thinking about why do blockbusters get made the way that they do and who are they targeting and how many people are being left out of that formula. So I feel like how I think about film kind of changed from a kid who loves seeing movies and sees it as a way to bond with people to now being an adult who thinks, well, there are ways that we bond together and how are there ways that movies also isolate us and segregate us and ignore us when they should be kind of bringing us together into a shared experience. And I feel like we are also living in a fascinating time for that (laughs) very problem where it's an apparent reality, um, whether or not it actually holds that business follows money more than they follow anything else. But more and more, we're able to demonstrate the industry is able to demonstrate and consumers are able to demonstrate that a diversity of opinions of views of faces both behind the camera and inside of the writer's room and on screen to draw people to the box office they make people want to come and see people who look like them or who don't look like them telling interesting stories in an engaging way how do you think that's come about in the last decade and a half like what do you think shifted i'm trying to think of a a, of a better way of phrasing that question is why did it take so long for white guys to be like maybe not us (laughs) well i (laughs) good way to pose it i also feel like not all white guys are kind of on that bandwagon yet i still feel like we have a lot to go but i think there are kind of three things that happened I, i think So much of it, like you said, has to come down to the money. The reality is that studios follow the money. And so when we went into this formula of Marvel movies and superhero movies, having to make a billion dollars to be profitable 
and each of them costing $200 million, it really squeezed the market. Like we don't see those smaller $20 million thrillers anymore. You don't see movies really for adults. You don't see character studies. You have a lot riding on these huge expensive films. And so I think with that in mind, I think studios are beginning to realize like, okay, if we sunk hundreds of millions of dollars into this and we need a huge return, let's try to see (laughs) whether we can include as many people as possible into that formula. And as much as the Fast and the Furious movies are ridiculous, one of my friends, um, Julian Lytle, who creates comics and is an artist, he calls them Black Avengers. Because the reality is I feel like that was one of the first movie franchises that had a bunch of people who weren't just white guys. It was like Paul mm-hmm. Walker was the only white guy. <laughs> and those movies went on to make hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think that was the first kind of franchise where studios realized like, okay, so you can make a bunch of money in South America, in Asia, in these international markets. And guess what? Those people will pay to see characters that look like them, like you said. So I feel like that's kind of been the shift is that even though we have all of these superhero movies and they're dominating the market, you also still have something like Fast and the Furious, which is representing for so many other parts of the world. And I think Wonder Woman also kind of speaks to that. And you mentioned Logan earlier. I think both of those are good examples of how you're basically taking the superhero formula, but you're making it more inclusive. I think in my review of Logan, I said it was like one of the most low-key, socially conscious movies of the year. And it's so true. It is so casually inclusive, that movie. The fact that you have the new Wolverine is a half Mexican-American girl who is just trying to figure out how she can be safe with her friends who all also happen to be different ethnicities, different races, come from different backgrounds. I mean, that movie, I feel like, just doesn't even make a big deal about the fact that what it's saying is our superhero, Logan, is helping illegal immigrant kids transport through the U.S., to freedom in Canada. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> put that, put in those bald of terms. It's kind of hilarious how progressive that movie is. And then Wonder Woman, I agree. There are totally issues with Wonder Woman. But still the fact that it took this long to get that movie, but then how successful it's been, I think, again, it's kind of making the point of the demand is there female viewers will see these movies viewers of different races will see these movies so why wouldn't you fill that and again not everything has to be a 200 million dollar movie i saw the big sick this week mm-hmm. it's a romantic comedy from comedian kumail nanjiani who's been on silicon valley and has done stand-up and it's about the true story of him and his wife and how they fell in love and that's a movie that was made for a very small amount of money but it is essentially about an immigrant from Pakistan who came to the U S and who fell in love with an American woman and what that relationship and that romance looks like. And that to me, like you said, like people are interested in seeing different points of view for as much as the superhero movies are going broad. And I appreciate that. There's also a place for something like the big sick, which is a very specific experience about being a first generation immigrant in America and how you relate to American culture and American people and kind of what that experience is. So I think we're seeing a shift very slowly, but I think we're seeing it. And I think because of the internet and people being able to talk to each other, connect with each other, make their voices heard, we're slowly seeing things change very slowly. Yeah. But I think they are changing. My hope is that given the acceleration over the last couple of years that we're, that, that, we're going to start eroding at the slowly part, um, especially looking at, I mean, Moonlight, Moonlight did, right. uh, totally yeah. broke everybody uh, at the mm-hmm. Academy Awards, especially how that went down. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that it's, it's almost appropriate. Like it's the, that kind of confusion mm-hmm. on stage is so, is so paralleled in so much of the lash out and the, and the pushback that you get from certain corners of the internet and certain corners of the consumer culture that are just like, wait, by not making the only thing available to me and all of my choices look like my perspective, you're somehow limiting me or oppressing me. Like the whole, the, the whole, the white backlash, the male backlash against Mm -hmm. that was, was kind of interestingly paralleled there. Um, Mm -hmm. The two other things that I thought of 
uh, specifically about Logan and Wonder Woman, when I think about how Logan was that low-key socially conscious, I wonder how intentional the uh, the farming family that they run into, that yes. whole story, that little story arc was this fascinating dive into like, what is it to be a middle-class, middle-America, African-American family? And what does it then mean that Logan shows up and they all pay the price of him moving through the space? Um, like how much it, 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 I, I hadn't thought about it until you were just until you were talking about the, the voyage of he and his daughter um, mm-hmm. through America, but that that echoes so much of the dialogue right now about the black experience in the U.S. And on the flip side, how how interesting a lot of the writing was in Wonder Woman, especially in certain choices around how to deal with romance and how to deal with war and this sort of. I remember seeing the film and experiencing this like visual cognitive dissonance of, oh, wait, you never see women. You never see women portrayed this way on film. You never see women in the brutality of, you know, of wartime violence this way. And it was just a fascinating shift. Um, I had a question at the beginning of that, but I kind of lost track of it. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) I think we can just talk about those scenes. I mean, I think for me, that scene in Logan tackles so many things from the beginning the fact that not only is it a middle class middle america black family but that what they're doing is battling this mega corporation that is making people addicted to sugar and they want to buy their land where they're actually i don't remember if they were actually breeding horses or if the horses just lived on the farm but regardless this African-American family is using their farmland to actually create things. And the corporation is using their land to make people addicted to things. And so, so much of that subplot I felt was super layered about what is our relationship with consumerism and with capitalism and with these mega corporations, the individual against that power. Mm -hmm. And then how does that change when you add the layer of race completely? I mean, I remember the son's bedroom. I don't know if you noticed, but the portraits that are on his wall, I think it's like a poster of Lincoln and a poster of, I think, Native American fighters. And so even that level of detail of like, this is how this family feels in this scene. Mm -hmm. And you think Logan is going to be this ally. And in a way he is, but even his helping causes violence and death. He can't escape his past. And so he falls back into this pattern that unfortunately this family is probably really used to. And so it is, it is, again, it's one of those things that to me was like, I can't believe that they are getting so much across just in what was that? Maybe 10 minutes, like maybe 10 minutes that they spent with that family. So it can be done. You can write these scenes that address various things. And there's no, I don't want to say that there's no <sighs> permanence to that because I I don't want to say that. But it's like I almost kind of admired the fact that the film had that scene and then it just moved along. Like it wasn't something that was Sadly, it wasn't something that was remarkable for this family to die because of Logan. And so I liked that. It made me think about it more like, well, what did they want to do by introducing this scene? And how did they want us to leave with that image? And then in the same way in Wonder Woman, there's a certain matter of factness in various scenes of Wonder Woman that I liked. I mean, if you want to talk about the sex scene, there really isn't a sex scene. Right. Right. I mean, you see him close the door and the two of them look at each other and the implication is there. And to me, that was enough. Yeah. Whereas then seeing her in the trenches where she sees soldiers missing limbs and she actually sees the human cost of that. I mean, I think I've seen all of the Marvel movies up until this point and the difference in PG-13 for Wonder Woman versus PG-13 for something like The Avengers is just mind-boggling because I feel like so much of Wonder Woman stayed with me in a more tangible way than anything that Marvel has done. So it's just interesting to see how are we going to treat violence and what are we trying to say with the violence of Wonder Woman versus, of course, she would be 
desired and loved by Chris Pine's character and they can have that relationship and you get it without needing to see it. But it's interesting. There was somebody that I was, it's literally the only person that I talked to who didn't like Wonder Woman and who said that they felt like they didn't appreciate that it felt like Wonder Woman took place in the real world. And it blew my mind because I was like, that is what I loved about Wonder Woman. I loved that it was set during a tangible time and place. It made me believe in it more. And so it was surprising to me to hear that be a criticism from somebody. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why you would turn against that part of the movie. I found, I mean, I I agree that one of the cool things about Wonder Woman is that it feels so real. And part of that, I think, is the writing let go of tropes in such a, Mm -hmm. down to the dialogue. Like the trench scene is the one that stayed with me the most concretely in that you have this moment where there's no cover. I think I can't remember. Chris Pine's character says something like there's no shield. Mm -hmm. And the obvious, like if this was the Avengers, she would have said, I am the shield, but she says, I I don't even remember what she says because it's such, it's such a true to, it's such a true to form line of dialogue. That's just like, no, this is wrong. I'm going right. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm going. This is, I'm going to go do this. Um, And that grittiness, that grittiness and that cost carries all the way back to the very beginning of the film and in, you know, her upbringing, her origin story where it's like, no, violence is dangerous. You see people Mm -hmm. getting hurt training. Like it's so much more visceral. Um, And the one other thing, and this might be as a, as a white, as a white male viewer, um, one of the things I found fascinating about the ending of the film is the way, uh, spoilers, the way Chris Pine expresses agency in making mm-hmm. his sacrifice, which I think you get in some other films, especially when, but so rarely do you see female secondary characters sacrificing themselves that way and not being saved, um, right. which is also remarkable. Like the agency taken from the perspective of every character at every point in the film is it's it's refreshing and it makes it it makes the cost feel real which then makes the movie more enjoyable and engaging i agree i think one of the things that and i think it's the the sense of personal responsibility that chris pine's character steve trevor has i think i mentioned in my review that i thought one of the most memorable things is when he's wrapped in the lasso of truth and he whispers to the amazons that it's like nothing he's ever seen before and it's clear that he's seen some shit like it is clear that he has seen some terrible things as a spy and as somebody who has served and yet what is happening here is just so outside of the scope of his understanding And so I liked that the script is kind of hushed in that way. Like they don't need to go into detail about what's so terrible because they take you to that place. They take you to the poison fields and they take you to the villagers who died and they take you to the children who are orphaned. And so there's so much more permanence to all of that, much like how the final way that he decides to tell her that he loves her and that this is what he needs to do. There's permanence in that too. Mm -hmm. And so I liked that Wonder Woman felt like it could be a standalone film as opposed to like the 15th movie in like a 30 movie franchise. (laughs) I know there will be a sequel. I understand that Wonder Woman's character will appear in other things, but to have something have that kind of finality, I think benefited it much like Logan. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that if we were to have another movie it might be x23 it's not going to be hugh jackman as logan anymore and so to have a conclusion one that actually feels real i feel like has been a benefit to a lot of movies this year and that might be something that changes too i mean i I think that there is something vaguely exhausting about the fact that there is another superhero movie every two months i mean we have another spider-man like i I, in so many ways i'm just tired (laughs) so i hope that for people it's kind of seeking out these other movies something like Baby Driver or The Big Sick or The Beguiled, things that are actually coming from a specific point of view, not like a room full of people. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that's what's beginning to change. I 100% agree. It's uh, 
it's nice to see i feel like we're in a bit of a renaissance of writing um mm-hmm. in that we're people are even even in episodic films they stand alone like they're you're you're getting a more complete arc from start to finish even compared to three years ago where you can just watch you can just watch a movie and there are obvious exceptions star wars is back spider-man is coming there's going to be 20 more marvel films in the next decade right but more and more i think people's attentions are moving back to back to films like uh, get out back to films that tell a story that both comment on our standing here now and and speak from a very specific point of view and i think it's just smarter i don't this is just my point of view i always want a movie to me to feel like there's something recognizable in any character's experience. I saw, I, I've been kind of so-so on the Planet of the Apes reboot, but I saw War for the Planet of the Apes last week and it literally blew my mind how much this became a movie about struggle and how to operate against an oppressive minority party. Because essentially, War for the Planet of the Apes is about the fact that Humans have been wiped out by virus, their own mistake that they made. And yet it is the apes who are smarter and there are more of them. And yet they are forced to reconcile with this invading human party that would rather destroy themselves than let anything else live. And I remember walking out of the movie and being like, I had no idea. (laughs) I had no idea that the third movie in a Planet of the Apes reboot franchise would go there. But I think that's what people that's what people are wanting to see. Yes, you're going to have these mega extravaganzas that people are always going to lose themselves in and whatever, that's fine. I understand the spectacle. But I also think that there is a way to have spectacle with something that is very intentional and tangible and we're slowly beginning to see that. I mean, I really appreciated the fact that Jordan Peele was offered Akira after the success of Get Out and he said, "No, I actually want to continue making my own movies Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or that Edgar Wright, whenever you bring up Ant-Man and the fact that he worked on it for eight years and Marvel eventually fired him from that project, he says that gave him the ability to create baby driver. So it's interesting to me that studios are picking up these directors and filmmakers who have a very particular point of view. And then when that point of view doesn't work out are firing them And yet those people are still going on to make really interesting work. I mean, the most recent one is the filmmaking duo that made 21 Jump Street and the Lego movie were hired to do the Star Wars Han Solo spinoff film. There's only a month left to go in filming and Star Wars fired them. And essentially, it's the same reason that they fired Gareth Edwards from Rogue One. They hired these people because they have a particular point of view. And then it turns out that the studios don't really like that point of view. That, to me, is the movie I want to see. Like, I wish I could have seen the version of Rogue One that Disney thought was too scary for families. Mm -hmm. So they reshot half of it. Or, like, I want to see this Han Solo movie that's never going to see the light of day. Like I I wish there was a way for us to see those films because I'm so curious about what the studios got scared of, like what threatened their bottom line in that way. And I don't know. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to see them, but I, you know, I would like to, I mean, I hope so. And I think there's, there's precedent for that. But I also think that, I think that studios are struggling with the idea that their focus groups don't have the answers. Um, yes. Which I think is something like coming from I coming from the political end of things and coming from political media. That's something all of media is struggling with right now. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to gauge what people want, and we never really did. But we're coming to terms with that in a really interesting way, and it's telling that more and more people are getting vocal on social media about the things they're consuming the vote with your the vote with your wallet approach right didn't work for a long time but mm-hmm. the vote with your facebook like does and i also th- i also think it's something about the fact that movies aren't really movies are always i think going to be the primary form of entertainment but you also cannot discredit the influence of tv i mean we're in like peak 
golden age television when it almost seems like every channel has some kind of TV show that is about some kind of, I don't know, a white anti-hero. We had a lot of those after Breaking Bad. But now we're beginning to see different things like Queen Sugar, which is from filmmaker Ava DuVernay, and it's about an African-American family and a sugar plantation. And I think for the second season of her show, she is only going to have female directors. Or you do have something like Big Little Lies, which became such a cultural conversation about the experiences of these for women. So I, I also think it's something that I think studios are beginning to realize. Well, not only are we competing for cash, but like you said, we're competing for attention and for that cultural conversation and for things to go trending on Twitter and for people to Instagram about it. So it's interesting to me too. I, I am sad in a way because I feel like it's awesome that there are so many different things to watch and so many different cultures that you can be exposed to and all that stuff. But I also wonder if we'll ever get back to that place of having a real cultural moment that involves the majority of people. Like I remember when I was young in like fifth grade, everybody was talking about the Seinfeld series finale. It was one of those things that was like a cultural flashpoint. Mm -hmm. Everybody was talking about it. And I don't know if now we're going to have something like that. And I don't know yet if that's a loss or if that's just the way that things are going to be as our culture has changed. But I wonder if there will ever be that one thing that dominates the conversation. I don't know. And I, I feel like studios are looking for that. Like, you know, they're hungry for something like that. But I don't know if we're ever going to have that again. I, I, I've talked in past episodes about in music, the want for a cultural canon in some ways, you know, the canon of rock and roll is different from the canon of 90s hip hop is different from the canon of, you know, orchestral music. But there were canons like there, there, mm -hmm. there was this baseline. Um, and now the canon itself feels really manufactured. Like the, the, the mainstream is very different from the influencers uh, when, it, when you talk about what people are listening to versus what musicians are listening to. And to an extent, that was always the case. But you still had like, you know, the Beatles were the Beatles, the Beach Boys were the Beach Boys, like, you know, the Rolling Stones. And I mm -hmm. think some of that is true in film. I think we're losing the canon. I think I, I agree with mm -hmm. you that we're that we're losing the canon. But I also I worry not just that we're losing the canon, and so we're losing this uh, social touchstone, but that we're losing the canon in the same way that we're losing hold on what the word truth means. Yes, because I the through line what I've been thinking about through most of the conversation is how media and film can teach so much without saying. Like you mm -hmm. talk about you talk about. We, going back to Logan, you talk about how much the film says without explicitly putting any of it out there. And in a world with this much media, those messaging undertones can very easily get pigeonholed one way or the other, depending on what you're watching. So if you're if you're used to watching things like, you know, reality television, then the underscore narrative is that, you know, conflict is, uh, you know, the primary driving factor of mm -hmm. literally any aspect of human experience in the Americas. Having that kind of conflict is completely normal. I wonder what truth is going to look like in film in a couple decades. Like, mm -hmm. I, I wonder, like, how much and how much how much are studios allies there versus the guys who are just going to make money off of it until they can't anymore? And I think so much of that is going to come from films that are, I think, written about very specific experiences. I mean, I think about Moonlight. I think about The Big Sick. I think about Hell or High Water. I think about Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Movies that are very, and you could say, you could arguably say they're niche. But I think they're movies that are so specific to one experience that there is so much truth there. Otherwise, nothing, the movie wouldn't work. There has to be an inherent, genuine sincerity. And I, I feel like so much recently, it feels like we have turned away from sincerity. Like we're very quick to label things campy or corny or melodramatic. And yet, don't we want that real emotion? <laughs> isn't that isn't that why you should pay attention to something? I mean, I think about Moonlight. I, I don't even know how 
I don't even know how moonlight works. It's so affecting and you can't forget it. And yet I almost feel like, but there are huge gaps in the narrative. Like there's so many questions that are unanswered, but that's what life is like. And so I feel like when you look at the script of moonlight or something like the script of hell or high water, which I think was super underrated, loved it. Like, yes, you have tons of movies about white people, but how many movies do we actually have about poor white people? Like I, I, I feel like that's also a group that is somewhat ignored. I mean, we have so many films about wealthy people and people who aren't struggling for anything. And yet Hell or High Water was actually about a slice of the country that rightfully has been kind of fucked over by our capitalist structure. And so movies like that, I have to think that there is always going to be space for that. And I think that's because of the fact that there are smaller studios. There's this studio A24 and they are behind so many of these movies including Moonlight and The Lobster and some of these other films yeah. that otherwise I don't think would get seen. So I think there is room for that smaller structure and there is room for sincerity. It just has to operate alongside larger things that maybe will always make money. I mean, I don't know at this point how you dismantle the superhero machine. I don't know if you can. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if you can once you have movies planned through like 2030. Yeah. So I don't know if you can ever take it apart, but I think that you have to make other lanes and other avenues for people to be able to actually share what they've gone through and what people are going through. Going back a little bit to the big emotions that you feel that, I mean, that films are really there to help you feel. Mm -hmm. The nice thing about media is that it's predictable in that you're going to be able to experience an emotion that is hard to get to out in the real world or that is, it's hard to manufacture out in the real world. Mm -hmm. My hope for superhero movies is that somebody, I mean, and I think you're starting to see this or we're seeing this a little bit more during the, the first round of uh, the superhero film explosion. You get these independent films that are like that are weird quirky takes on what it is to be a superhero that right. start to dismantle it a little bit and that inch by inch we'll get to something new and that's not to say that the superhero movies are the only problem i mean i think oh, no. sequels are certainly a problem i mean i feel like every movie i am reviewing this summer is a sequel there's the transformer sequel and despicable me and cars and everything has something else so even if you have an initial idea that is interesting i mean i think as an example wonder woman wonder woman stood on its own as a film it was fine there will inevitably be a wonder woman too i don't know what that's going to look like i don't know if it's going to have the same impact as a film that was very tangibly about world war one and how terrible we all are to each other i don't i don't know it almost feels like every sequel loses something of the film that came before until we're all just, I don't know, the Avengers floating in space and fighting space gods. I think that's what is going to happen. So, (laughs) you know, so they're part of the problem, but so much of it also is just the fact that people don't take chances on genuine or on unique or on interesting ideas anymore for fear that they will fail. And that's because there's so much money being thrown around and nobody wants to be responsible for a failure. And it's interesting, this summer has actually had a lot of flops. And I think flops of things that people thought would be sure bets. I mean, Baywatch flopped. Oh God, yeah. King Arthur flopped. The Mummy flopped. Transformers, even by its own standards, flopped. So domestically, we are seeing these movies do poorly. Now, internationally, they're still going to make a ridiculous amount of money. I think Pirates has made $700 million internationally. Mm. But my question is, eventually... What do we do about this idea of domestic box office versus international box office? How much are people considering, well, domestically, do we want things to change versus, well, we're going to make $700 million around the world? I don't know how you answer that question either, because I don't think <laughs> I never want to say like the U.S. should be exclusionary in any way. But <laughs> do I want to see like a pirate? Like, do I want to see a Pirates 18? I don't. I don't know. So that's a, that's a part of the formula, too, is when you're crafting something like a Get Out, I'm sure that somebody said to Jordan Peele, well, you know, Get Out isn't going to play well internationally. Well, nobody knew that it was going to be like the number one movie in South Korea. Like nobody could have guessed that would happen. Right. So I, so I don't know. Those are those are things that I just I don't even know how you begin 
to figure out. And there's so much about the studio machine that is just a mystery, I think, to most people. And I think the average is that most people see two movies in theaters a year. So, you know, like, what are those two movies going to be? How much do you think media literacy plays into that? Because when I think about when I think about what makes sequels bad and or not as good as the original and sort of like a, a continually diminishing return, I feel like it's an unwillingness of screenwriters or more specifically studios and studio producers to leave something off screen. Like mm-hmm. even even something that is established establishes character development in the original films or the original aspects of the franchise, but that only needs to be restated explicitly if you don't give your audience enough credit to understand that this character isn't the character that was originally a part of the the narrative arc, but right. is the character that they are in, in the arc of the film. I mean, I think so much of it is fear. I think people, I think studios are afraid, like you said, of somebody forgetting something and so then we go overboard with too much muchness i mean i think about the fact that the pirate sequel it is what the fifth pirate sequel and yet we are still having scenes where we're seeing captain jack sparrow down an entire bottle of rum because don't forget he's an alcoholic like do you know what i mean (laughs) yeah don't forget like how could you ever forget that there's one scene where he wakes up in a um bank vault that they're trying to steal and of course like the governor's heaving bosomed wife who has no lines is in the vault with him and it's like did you remember that jack sparrow is an asshole to women we can't let you forget that so i think so much of it is just laziness it's that sense of Mm -hmm. well did people like the first scene three movies ago then let's copy that and so much of this also comes down i think not only to media literacy but also to media analysis because when i go to a movie screening that is held by a PR company that's hired by the studio. The studio often gives the PR representative a list, like a checklist of things to notice when the movie is playing. So when did the audience laugh? When was there talking? Did people walk out at a certain point? And these are the things that they're measuring, but there was somebody that created that list. Like there was somebody that watched the movie and tried to analyze how people would respond to every single second of that. So I feel like if we're continuously going back to that data and we're going back to the trend of people laughed when Jack Sparrow was an asshole to a woman, I don't know at what point do you disregard that data and just say, fuck it, we're going to do something different. I don't know. I don't know if it's because, like you said, maybe there is this sense of not believing that your audience gets it and not willing to change something new you're investing so much money and so much time that maybe it seems safer to do something that's already been done and i also think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that there are are there movie stars anymore (laughs) i mean are there that's something that's been a question for a long time i mean yes you have tom cruise traveling around the world to get people to see the mummy you have johnny depp but more and more that system has also disappeared. So I think people, studios are so desperate to stick with what they think that they know that they'll keep giving the same people chance after chance after chance until there's a failure so spectacular that they don't anymore. But I've become very cynical. I think if we've seen six Johnny Depp movies fail and we know that that he abused his wife and we know that he threw away hundreds of millions of dollars, and yet he's still getting hired. So there's some things, I think, that just don't change until a particular generation of filmmakers and studio executives and stars have either faded away or died out. Honestly, I mean, that sounds very dark. Oh, no. (laughs) That went to a dark place. (laughs) But I think about the fact that Johnny Depp joked about assassinating Trump and still has all of his jobs. I, you know, like, yeah. I don't think any, I don't think anything is going to change for that man. Mm-mm. So I think it just comes to a place where I think generationally we have to change and certain things just have to change. The Academy is changing. Like mm-hmm. they finally invited a new class that is, I think over 40% female, 30% uh, minority groups. I mean, that's awesome. That's the kind of stuff that we need moving forward. So that to me, I'm so glad that that actually happened after three years of Oscars so white controversy yeah so as we talked about small changes 
but I think the audience also has to want it. People have to stop going to see the same old crap. And I think that's fine. We're finally seeing that happen in this summer with so many things that are flopping. I think we're finally beginning to see that. Hopping quickly onto the movie star side of it, comparing Johnny Depp to, say, Robert Downey Jr., who mm-hmm. is a historically extremely talented actor troubled and, and troubled. But watching, you know, watching him get in and in and in, like he's never going to not be on, but then not trusting them to play the characters that mm-hmm. you want to play, like not not trusting Johnny De- or not trusting uh, Robert Downey Jr. enough to bring enough to Iron Man so that he doesn't have to tell you the entire plot of Avengers right. to explain why he's a broken character in Iron right. Man three. Um, right. We didn't need that five minute scene. Like nobody needed right. that. He's, he's a good enough actor. It comes across. Right. Then you look at films like Moonlight and Get Out. I mean, and Drive, where no one's explaining the scene before. No one. Nobody is explaining Drive. No, nobody. nobody like, no, you don't have to explain anything. It's right. just the characters. Right. Are, the actors are doing. The actors right. are playing the characters well and conveying that emotional space to us. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue helps them do that. But like, that level of trust is the only. Like, it seems like that level of trust is the only counter to that level of fear inside of the studio system. Like, you have to trust people enough. I think you have to trust people. And I think you also have to have a sense of what is going to pay off long term. Because mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that you brought up Drive, one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years that failed commercially. I mean, it didn't come in with what they expected. It had a horrible cinema score. Most audiences hated it. It pissed the studio off. <laughs> all of all of Nicholas Winding Refn's, you know, next projects went out the window. Mm-hmm. So he he leaned into getting like really fucking weird. Like he made Only God Forgives with Ryan Gosling, which was also incredibly strange, a super violent fever dream. He made The Neon Demon with Amazon. He had to like it's so telling to me that it had to be Amazon, like mm-hmm. a studio that is willing to take risks because they have to that he partnered with. And again, these movies are cult hits he has a very strong presence in certain film circles but i think it's taken years for people now to realize like oh shit drive was actually a really good movie it's taken a long time for that to happen so i also think that there's that trust of well maybe something won't be super amazing right now but is it going to gain traction and word of mouth and is it going to be interesting to people i mean hell or high water came out in August. August is like a dead zone for movies. Like it's too early for the Oscar bait of October and November and December. And it's later than your typical blockbusters. But Hell or High Water had great word of mouth and it stayed in theaters for months and then eventually got a bunch of Oscar nominations. So there's that sense too of, are you going to invest in marketing this movie? Are you going to make sure that it stays in theaters for longer than a month? Mm -hmm. Are you going to advertise it well? Are you actually going to support it? Because we see superhero movies, The Mummy, the big blockbuster ones, get tons of promotion. And then they flop. And nobody talks about marketing costs. But are you going to do what's needed to make these smaller movies stick around and for two years still have somebody say like, oh shit, Get Out was amazing. And so it's interesting to me. I want to see studios also put forth that effort of, okay, so you got $15. Cool. Are you only going to make a bunch of money the first weekend? Or are you going to see returns over the course of a month, two months, three months? I remember Jurassic Park in the early 90s, I think was in theaters for two years. Yeah is mind-blowing like totally that would never happen like that would never happen today and yet i would say jurassic park was one of those cultural conversation moments so i think it's a mixture of trusting your audience and being willing to meet them where they are there's a movie earlier this year that i really wanted to see a horror film called it comes at night from Mm -hmm. the same studio a24 that released the witch and i think it was in theaters for maybe two weeks like it, it did really poorly the first weekend and then it was gone by the second week. And it's like, well, what if somebody saw it and like talked to their friend and their friend wanted to see it? You just lost out on that money. So I, I think it has to do as well with what's the role of the movie theaters? Are we still going to have movie theaters in 20 years or is everything going to be streaming? 
I just think that everything is in flux. And I, I don't want to say it's easy because none of it's easy, but it's more complicated, I think, than we initially think about. There's so, there used to be a bigger experience, I think. And this could just be me romanticizing the, the 90s and early 2000s. But when I think the about cinema, <laughs> the cinema, but also the way, like from a production standpoint, like when you make a film, especially like a big film that isn't about like a character diver story, you shoot it in a certain way. Like Jurassic Park is shot in a way to take advantage of the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Superhero movies don't do that that mm-hmm. way. You know, they're shot like comic books, but you can you can read a comic book anywhere. Um, you don't have you, there's something about the technique that is shifted. That's and I think I wonder if part of it's because it's easier, like the the threshold to entry on you know, producing good looking, not like cinema quality, but good looking media has has dropped significantly. Or if it's just that when you have a new film in theaters every couple of weeks, not necessarily from the same studio, but from somewhere, if Jurassic Park is the one movie that's coming out in quarter one, you put all of those eggs in that basket and you really pay attention to it. You know, right. if... You know, if Doctor Strange is one of three Marvel movies coming out this year, which is one of ten Disney movies coming out this year, then, yep. you know, yep. you cut your losses. I agree. And I think so much of it, too, and I think this is also where the movie theater part of it comes up, is like you said, yes, mo- there's, so, there's so many movies. It's such a workmanlike process now where I think studios honestly don't care as much. So you have to have a specific director who is willing to work within that medium. I mean, I think Christopher Nolan is one of the only directors now who I think really considers how is this going to play out in theaters? I think of something like Inception. Inception blew people's minds. Like, (laughs) I think that visually that movie, seeing that movie in a theater was insane. I think of Dunkirk, which is his next movie that's coming out in the next few weeks. War film. It's being carried, shot on film, because I think Christopher Nolan only shoots on film. And it is being carried in 70 millimeter formats wherever people can. So like at AFI Silver. But that's rare. There just aren't that many movie theaters that even still have that format anymore. It becomes difficult, I think, to really make things a cinematic enthralling experience when the resources aren't even there. Mm -hmm. It was a couple of years ago that Quentin Tarantino released the hateful eight and he was taking it across the country on like a national road tour of movie theaters that had 70 millimeter. And I remember there were so many news articles just about how atypical that was Mm -hmm. that movie theaters had to dig out this equipment and make sure that it still worked Mm -hmm. because that's just not what, what, is being made anymore. So I think that's true too. Is it's like, if we're not even making movies that are suited toward the movie theater, then yeah, I do feel like you're slowly just market marching toward everything being streamed because it doesn't look different, right? Like everybody's got a 60 inch TV. So does it look that different from going to the movie theater? I don't know. And I, again, I think that's just access. We all have so much access now, which is awesome but it also means that things get a little bit diluted along the way. Yeah, because I don't go to the movies to see the movie. Like, I go to Mm -hmm. the movies to see the movie. I go to a movie, especially, like, in the first three weekends. I go to a movie because I want to be in a room full of people Mm -hmm. watching this movie. There's a shared energy in that space. Like, everybody gasps at the same time. There's this affirmation of that experience or sometimes I go to a movie so that I can sit in a massive dark room alone at 11 o'clock in the morning and watch this thing on a huge screen because again it's a different type of experience and it's not an experience that you're ever going to be able to get at home that way Mm -hmm. I feel like one of the things that streaming is doing is losing and we talked about this a little bit earlier losing some of the cultural context and sort of that that cultural weight I yeah I mean I don't I don't disagree I think it loses permanence honestly because I feel like I stream something and it's over and I'm like okay that was cool and then I just I don't (laughs) I don't really think about it again in the same way that I think about a movie that is 
huge and all around me and rubbing shoulders with the guy next to me and we're looking at each other and like super pumped. Yeah, there's totally an energy in that space that you're not necessarily going to capture in streaming. I also feel like so much of streaming, maybe this is just me, but so much of streaming is, okay, I'm binge watching this. Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily enjoying it. I'm waiting for it to be over. And so I feel like that sense of I'm waiting for this to be over so I can move on to the next thing is not really what people experience at the movie. So it's also just a different way of consuming. Like, are you paying attention when streaming at home the same way as if when you go to a theater? I don't know. I don't know if you do. I think there's a convenience to streaming that is inarguable. But I don't know if the same attention span is there. And so that's kind of what I wonder about the future of HBO and Showtime and Netflix. Like Netflix has finally started needing to cancel shows Mm -hmm. because the reality is they cost an insane amount of money. And Netflix, Netflix never releases viewership numbers like that is their MO. They're never going to actually tell you how many people are watching their programming. But the fact that they're finally canceling things this year was very interesting to me. So I don't know. So much of this, Bruno, I feel like is in flux, like so many things about our entertainment culture. I mean, I still feel today, like you talked about with music, this sense of what I hear on the radio is never what I actually feel like people are listening to. (laughs) (laughs) Never, like I never feel that way. I will hear a song and I'll be like, I've heard this song like 15 times today. What? Like, I don't even know who this is. So I just feel like the agendas are different. So it's like the music labels and what they put on the radio is to me a similar agenda to what studios are putting in the theaters. And so it's like how much longer is that going to continue? One one quick thing about Netflix. Netflix worries me a little bit when mm-hmm. it comes to like talking about the evolution of studios. Because even looking looking at their original content and hopping back to superheroes, just because that's the zeitgeist is all superheroes. Sure. I look at like the first season of Daredevil, which was cool and edgy and mm-hmm. like gritty in a way that superhero movies hadn't quite gotten yet. And then I look at Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, which were really interesting and fascinating and engaging in a way that you didn't really see in the superhero universe either. And then you get season two of Daredevil and then which was terrible. You get Iron Fist. It was so and and it worries like I'm worried that they that they're falling into the same traps that studios fell into or studios fall into all the time. This thing is popular. Mm -hmm. So people are going to watch it. We don't have to put as much energy into it. And even like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, they're well written you mm-hmm. know, they're well acted, but you can see some of the seams around the edges and how they're shot. Like you can like the production quality isn't there. Yeah. But see, that to me almost is that to me is like the problem of Netflix amplified, because I feel like those shows are just beginning steps toward the end game of eventually they all come together. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I remember seeing a trailer for that. Mm-hmm. I feel like Marvel did a really good job with the first round of superhero films. It didn't feel like they were that close together. Everybody got their own movie. Everybody got their own origin story. Avengers, fine, whatever. And then we entered this world of everybody is in everything all the time. And there's so much overlap. I don't think you can continue telling effective stories when your focus is on the team as opposed to the individual components of that team. So like I've wanted to watch Jessica Jones for a long time, but it's like, yeah, but like I'm definitely not going to watch that show where she teams up with everybody else. Oh, for sure. <laughs> like I I do not care about that. And yet that's eventually what's going to happen. Once you bring all the characters together, there's no separating them out anymore. So then I think you're trapped in that formula of okay, well if we have Iron Man and something, who else from the Avengers is going to show up? Like, all right, so Spider-Man is here. Iron Man is here. Should we have any other cameos? Mm -hmm. I just think so much of it is, like you said, the need for people to remind you, like, oh, did you remember that Captain America is an Avenger? Yes, I remembered. (laughs) Thank you for telling me. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't forget. Now, all of that said, I am excited for Black Panther. Oh, all crapping God, on superhero yes. movies aside. <laughs> did you did you read the Tanasi Coates 
series? No. Oh man. So So good. I really need to do that. But (laughs) I love, like I love Ryan Coogler so much. I loved Creed so much. So I'm just, I'm so excited. And again, I'm so excited about the fact that we're getting like an actual director with a particular point of view, Mm -hmm. making a superhero movie. Mm -hmm. Will there be a black Panther two that might not be as effective? Probably there probably will be (laughs) one thing I will say though. And I think that Captain America civil war did this well mm-hmm. um I, my hope is they're starting to get it what made civil war really effective is that they made it about relationships yes like yeah civil war was okay cool everybody's here and it introduced black panther and that's awesome but really it became about the ongoing conflict between captain and stark and captain's relationship with bucky mm-hmm. and distilling it down to just that they did it like that was interesting like yes. Thor Ragnarok has the capacity to be a movie about Thor and Hulk in a kind of weird buddy comedy way that could be a very fun turn. Right. And that director is amazing. So like yeah. I have hope in that. But I agree with you that I enjoy Civil War except for the massive fight sequence, which is totally boring. It's and pointless. I literally it's pointless. I walk away when it's happening. Nobody's going to get injured. I don't care. Yeah. But Captain and Bucky and Captain trying to figure out what do I owe this person versus what do I owe the team? I always think that the Captain movies have been more effective than any of the other Marvel films because there's so much interiority to that character and his relationship with Bucky is such a particular kind of loyalty and brotherhood. And so, yeah, that is what those movies do amazingly well. And that to me was I remember I, I remember caring so little about Avengers 2 and yet Civil War conveniently now that it's on Netflix I do rewatch it every so often. One one thing about Civil War going back to the idea of a contained arc the difference between that big massive fight scene where everyone's there and suddenly Spider-Man mm-hmm. shows up and like okay cool you guys got Spider-Man back great. Awesome. Um, right. Yay. Yeah. The difference between that and the last 15 minutes where it's like, oh, my God, someone. Oh, my God. Wait, Bucky <sighs> might actually die. We don't know right. what happens right. next. Right. And and the stakes have been so high. Cap'n could die. Yeah. Stark could lose a limb. Like yes. there are real consequences here, which mm-hmm. I think is why standalone like the action film I'm most excited about this summer is um, Atomic Blonde, not just mm. because that trailer was beautifully cut but also because it's like this is a movie about consequences and about Mm -hmm. consequences coming home to roost and it might not end well everyone might end up dead and that's way more interesting than a sequel series where it's like it's gonna seem really intense but everybody's gonna make it out because we need them to come back next summer right and i feel like that's kind of the fine line that's being walked right now with john wick who is from the same people that did atomic blonde mm-hmm. it's like the first john wick was a ama- i personally think like a perfect film. <laughs> <laughs> i love keanu reeves in his yes. like mid 50s action star glory i love that movie that to me if we're talking about actions have consequences sometimes very ugly terrible consequences but i think john wick is a perfect fit for that john wick 2 i loved stylistically and visually but it does fall into the trap of only really setting up john wick 3 so that to me like if we're talking about spectacle like i loved the spectacle of john wick 2 but it irritated me of course that it's going to be the third movie that wraps things up. And it's interesting because I feel like if we're really going to go back to like the original trilogy format, you had Empire Strikes Back. A lot of really permanent shit happens in Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to me that we have kind of moved away from the middle movie having tangible consequences. And now the middle movie always just feels like filler. I don't know if that's always because we're going to have trilogies i i don't i don't know how that keeps going in the future but i would always take civil war over winter soldier i wish writers would ask can we distill this plot down to 15 minutes of bottle dialogue or like (laughs) can we make this into a really interesting like weighty scene 
where something important happened off screen that is slowly revealed over the course of the film and you get parts of it early on that make you want to know more. And then the resolution of the film is actually telling you all these things that happened on screen in a way that has meaningful consequence. But that's like, this is why I hope writing like good screenwriting I hope I see it coming back and I'm hoping like it's really going to make a return just because talking about it that way, even it all mm. makes me really excited. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I hear it in your voice. It's adorable. But so much I, I feel like so often I see a movie where I'm like, but these two characters never talk to each other. And if they did, there wouldn't be a movie. And yeah. that is like my largest just my biggest pet peeve in life is so your characters are all idiots and they can't have a conversation. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, I'm glad that we're somewhat moving away from that. But for me, yeah, this summer is hopefully Atomic Blonde, Dunkirk. I mean, I think there are still some good movies to be had. You're just going to have to search a little more for them. All right. Closing out. And I'm I'm being very self-indulgent in this question. What are your thoughts on The Room? And what are your thoughts on the fact that they're making a movie based off of the book? based off of the making of the movie (laughs) that is obscenely overcast. I I honestly don't even know why this is happening. Like I really like, I think about it and I'm like, why, why is this occurring? Like, I honestly have no answer for it. And I don't know if it's one of those things that it's like twisted nostalgia turned into mockery like i can't i honestly can't understand if it is satirical or what it is but then i also remember that it's being directed by james franco Mm -hmm. and then everything i feel like james franco does now is like self-masturbatory so i i don't know if it's just his own self-indulgence i don't know who's really asking for this movie i don't know i don't i blame james franco so much for everything. I didn't know it was a thing until a couple of weeks ago. And like as someone who really enjoys how bad the room is just as a mm-hmm. like study and like you show this to film classes and like anything that gets done in this movie, if you catch yourself doing it, stop. Just throw out the yeah. camera. Right. Like, as just an burn the whole thing down. Piece, yeah. Right. As an analysis piece, it's fascinating. But I feel like it is so James Franco's move to do this that I don't like I wouldn't take it seriously anyway. Yeah. But then, of course, knowing that it's Franco, it's like, well, I extra can't. Well, right. It's, it's, a, it's a self-masturbatory project about a movie that was literally like Tommy Wiseau was just like, I have all the money and I'm going to make this movie. Mm-hmm. And like, this is just going to be a movie mm-hmm. about me. Right. But this cast is ridiculous. I mean, it's Alison Brie, who is married to Dave Franco. So James Franco's sister-in-law at this mm-hmm. point. Zach Efron, Christopher Mintzplatz, Lizzie Kaplan, Kristen Bell, Brian Cranston, Dave Franco, Seth Rogen, Sharon Stone. Like, as is so often the case with James Franco movies, I feel like him and his friends got high and we're like, how much can <laughs> we get to make this movie? <laughs> Let's just film it. And you know what? I can shit on James Franco for doing that. But at least his choices are more interesting than like Adam Sandler, who does the same thing with his own friends and just makes garbage. I've heard funny stories about grownups where it's basically like, we don't write a movie we get the studios to give us a whole bunch of money. You stand around and film all day for two weeks while my friends and I get drunk and goof off and grow yeah. food. And then we make something out of it. And it's Right. Which is mind blowing. How do I get that deal in life? Like, how do I get paid to just hang out with my friends and act like a jackass? I, it's, it is. And that's, you know, if we're talking about movie stars that are no longer relevant, <laughs> <laughs> Adam Sandler is like a perfect case for that. And yet Netflix gave him a six picture deal. So it's just, you know, I think that there has to be a point at which these old stars just thoroughly disappear Mm -hmm. so that we can finally, you know, like the hundreds of millions of dollars that Netflix gave Adam Sandler for six movies that nobody has watched. Where else could that money have gone? Right. Because I mean, for all of that money, you could have made dozens, dozens of small films that would be interesting Mm -hmm. and that would benefit from this, like from being introduced on streaming where they can gain traction and word of mouth is way more important. And the, and the risk is so much lower because you don't have to start advertising them until they already have a viewership. And I think that's my hope is that's where like Amazon and Netflix end up going. Yeah. My hope is that it becomes 
what we saw with TV, which is taking chances on unique ideas instead of being the place where washed up movie stars go. Because that's what I really construe the Adam Sandler deal to be is you failed in movie theaters. And so Netflix gave you hundreds of millions of dollars to fail on streaming. So I think when those opportunities finally start disappearing, we'll all be better off. Someday all the old white men will die. I know. It's reassuring. (laughs) That's our episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can find out more about Roxana at applyingtoeverything.xyz slash guests. You can also read Roxana's reviews online at either chesapeakefamily.com or her website, roxanahadadi.com, and follow her at roxana underscore hadadi on Twitter. You can find out more about this show at applyingtoeverything.xyz or on iTunes and Google Play where you can subscribe to, rate, and review the show. Also, if you like it, let other people know about it. It's how we get new listeners. Thanks to Humble Fire for the use of our theme song, Mount St. Misery, off of The Great Resolve, available on iTunes, Spotify, and at humblefire.band. I'd also like to thank Kiara Scarcella for designing our logo. Tune in next week for my conversation with Kyle Dalton about history, facing bias, and learning from our past. Talk to you then.